Chapter Number One, Part One of Widdershins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green. Widdershins by Oliver Onions. The Beckoning Fair One, Chapter One, Part One. The three or four toilette boards had stood within the low paling as long as the inhabitants of the little triangular square could remember, and if they had ever been vertical it was a very long time ago. They now overhung the palings each at its own angle, and resembled nothing so much as a row of wooden choppers, ever in the act of falling upon some passer-by, yet never cutting off a tenant for the old house from the stream of his fellows. Not that there was ever any great stream through the square. The stream passed a furlong and more away, beyond the intricacy of tenements and alleys and byways that had sprung up since the old house had been built, hemming it in completely, and probably the house itself was only suffered to stand pending the falling in of a lease or two, when doubtless a clearance would be made of the whole neighbourhood. It was of bloomy old red brick, and built into its walls were the crowns and clasped hands and other insignia of insurance companies long since defunct. The children of the secluded square had swung upon the low gate at the end of the entrance alley, until little more than the solid top bar of it remained, and the alley itself ran past boarded basement windows on which tramps had chalked their cryptic marks. The path was washed and worn uneven by the spilling of water from the eaves of the encroaching next house, and cats and dogs had made the approach their own. The chances of a tenant did not seem such as to warrant the keeping of the two let boards in a state of legibility and repair, and as a matter of fact they were not so kept. For six months Oleron had passed the old place twice a day or oftener on his way from his lodgings to the room ten minutes' walk away he had taken to work in, and for six months no hatchet-like notice-boards had fallen across his path. This might have been due to the fact that he usually took the other side of the square, but he chanced one morning to take the side that ran past the broken gate and the rain-worn entrance alley and to pause before one of the inclined boards. The board bore, besides the agent's name, the announcement, written apparently about the time of Oleron's own early youth, that the key was to be had at number six. Now Oleron was already paying for his separate bedroom and workroom more than an author who, without private means, habitually disregards his public, can afford, and he was paying, in addition, a small rent for the storage of the greater part of his grandmother's furniture. Moreover, it invariably happened that the book he wished to read in bed was at his working quarters, half a mile and more away, while the note or letter he had sudden need of during the day was as likely as not to be in the pocket of another coat hanging behind his bedroom door. And there were other inconveniences in having a divided domicile. Therefore Oleron, brought suddenly up by the hatchet-like notice-board, looked first down through some scanty privet bushes at the boarded basement windows, then up at the blank and grimy windows of the first floor, and so up to the second floor and the flat stone coping of the leads. He stood for a minute, thumbing his lean and shaven jaw, then with another glance at the board he walked slowly across the square to number six. He knocked and waited for two or three minutes, but although the door stood open, received no answer. He was knocking again when a long-nosed man in shirt-sleeves appeared. "'I was asking a blessing on our food,' he said, in severe explanation. Elrond asked if he might have the key of the old house, and the long-nosed man withdrew again. 
Oleron waited for another five minutes on the step, and then the man, appearing again and masticating some of the food of which he had spoken, announced that the key was lost. "'Be you won't want it,' he said. "'The entrance door isn't closed, and a push will open any of the others. I'm an agent for it, if you're thinking of taking it.' Oleron recrossed the square, descended the two steps at the broken gate, passed along the alley, and turned in at the old wide doorway. To the right, immediately within the door, steps descended to the roomy cellars, and the staircase before him had a carved rail, and was broad and handsome and filthy. Oleron ascended it, avoiding contact with the rail and wall, and stopped at the first landing. A door facing him had been boarded up, but he pushed at that on his right hand, and an insecure bolt or staple yielded. He entered the empty first floor. He spent a quarter of an hour in the place, and then came out again. Without mounting higher, he descended and recrossed the square to the house of the man who had lost the key. "'Can you tell me how much the rent is?' he asked. The man mentioned a figure, the comparative lowness of which seemed accounted for by the character of the neighbourhood and the abominable state of unrepair of the place. "'Would it be possible to rent a single floor?' The long-nosed man did not know. "'They might. Who were they?' The man gave Oleron the name of a firm of lawyers in Lincoln's Inn. "'You might mention my name, Barrett,' he added. Pressure of work prevented Oleron from going down to Lincoln's Inn that afternoon, but he went on the morrow, and was instantly offered the whole house as a purchase for fifty pounds down, the remainder of the purchase money to remain on mortgage. It took him half an hour to disabuse the lawyer's mind of the idea that he wished anything more of the place than to rent a single floor of it. This made certain hums and haws of a difference, and the lawyer was by no means certain that it lay within his power to do as Oleron suggested. But it was finally extracted from him that, provided the notice-boards were allowed to remain up, and that, provided it was agreed that in the event of the whole house letting, the arrangement should terminate automatically without further notice, something might be done. That the old place should suddenly let over his head seemed to Oleron the slightest of risks to take, and he promised a decision within a week. On the morrow he visited the house again, and went through it from top to bottom, and then went home to his lodgings to take a bath. He was immensely taken with that portion of the house he had already determined should be his own, scraped, clean, and repainted, and with that old furniture of Oleron's grandmother's, it ought to be entirely charming. He went to the storage warehouse to refresh his memory of his half-forgotten belongings, and to take measurements, and thence he went to a decorator's. He was very busy with his regular work, and could have wished that the notice-board had caught his attention either a few months earlier or else later in the year, but the quickest way would be to suspend work entirely until after his removal. A fortnight later, his first floor was painted throughout in a tender elderflower white. The paint was dry, and Oleron was in the middle of his installation. He was animated, delighted, and he rubbed his hands as he polished and made disposals of his grandmother's effects. The tall lattice-pane china cupboard, with its derby and mason and spode, the large folding Sheraton table, the long, low bookshelves, he had had two of them copied, the chairs, the Sheffield candlesticks, the riveted rose-bowls. These things he set against his newly-painted elder-white walls, walls of wood panelled in the happiest proportions, and moulded and coffered to the low-seated window recesses in a mood of gaiety and rest that the builders of rooms no longer know. The ceilings were lofty and faintly painted with an old pattern of stars. Even the tapering mouldings of his iron fireplace were as delicately designed as jewellery, and Oleron walked about rubbing his hands, frequently stopping for the mere pleasure of the glimpses from white room to white room. Charming, 
Charming, he said to himself. I wonder what Elsie Bengough will think of this. He bought a bolt and a Yale lock for his door, and shut off his quarters from the rest of the house. If he now wanted to read in bed, his book could be had for stepping into the next room. All the time he thought how exceedingly lucky he was to get the place. He put up a hat-rack in the little square hall, and hung up his hats and caps and coats, and passes through the small triangular square late at night, looking up over the little serried row of wooden to-let hatchets, could see the light within Oleron's red blinds, or else the sudden darkening of one blind and the illumination of another, as Oleron, candlestick in hand, passed from room to room, making final settlings of his furniture, or preparing to resume the work that his removal had interrupted. As far as the chief business of his life, his writing, was concerned, Paul Oleron treated the world a good deal better than he was treated by it, but he seldom took the trouble to strike a balance, or to compute how far, at forty-four years of age, he was behind his points on the handicap. To have done so wouldn't have altered matters, and it might have depressed Oleron. He had chosen his path, and was committed to it beyond possibility of withdrawal. Perhaps he had chosen it in the days when he had been easily swayed by something a little disinterested, a little generous, a little noble, and had he ever thought of questioning himself, he would still have held to it that a life without nobility and generosity and disinterestedness was no life for him. Only quite recently, and rarely, had he even vaguely suspected that there was more in it than this, but it was no good anticipating the day when, he supposed, he would reach that maximum point of his powers, beyond which he must inevitably decline, and be left face to face with the question whether it would not have profited him better to have ruled his life by less exigent ideals. In the meantime his removal into the old house, and with the insurance marks built into its brick, merely interrupted Romilly Bishop at the fifteenth chapter. As this tall man with the lean ascetic face moved about his new abode, arranging, changing, altering, hardly yet into his working stride again, he gave the impression of almost spinster-like precision and nicety. For twenty years past, in a score of lodgings, garrets, flats and rooms furnished and unfurnished, he had been accustomed to do many things for himself, and he had discovered that it saves time and temper to be methodical. He had arranged with the wife of the long-nosed Barrett, a stout Welsh woman with a falsetto voice, the Merionethshire accent of which long residence in London had not perceptibly modified, to come across the square each morning to prepare his breakfast, and also to turn the place out on Saturday mornings, and for the rest he even welcomed a little housework as a relaxation from the strain of writing. His kitchen, together with the adjoining strip of an apartment into which a modern bath had been fitted, overlooked the alley at the side of the house, and at one end of it was a large closet with a door, and a square sliding hatch in the upper part of the door. This had been a powder-closet, and through the hatch the elaborately dressed head had been thrust to receive the click and puff of the powder-pistol. Oleron puzzled a little over this closet. Then, as its use occurred to him, he smiled faintly, a little moved. He knew not by what. He would have to put it to a very different purpose from its original one it would probably have to serve as his larder. It was in this closet that he made a discovery. The back of it was shelved, and rummaging on an upper shelf that ran deeply into the wall, Oleron found a couple of mushroom-shaped old wooden wig-stands. He did not know how they had come to be there, doubtless the painters had turned them up somewhere or other and had put them there. But his five rooms, as a whole, were short of cupboard and closet room, 
and it was only by the exercise of some ingenuity that he was able to find places for the bestowal of his household linen, his boxes, and his seldom used, but not to be destroyed, accumulations of papers. It was in the early spring that Oleron entered on his tenancy, and he was anxious to have Romilly ready for publication in the coming autumn. Nevertheless, he did not intend to force its production. Should it demand longer in the doing, so much the worse. He realised its importance, its crucial importance, in his artistic development, and it must have its own length and time. In the workroom he had recently left, he had been making excellent progress. Romilly had begun, as the saying is, to speak an act of herself, and he did not doubt she would continue to do so the moment the distraction of his removal was over. This distraction was almost over, he told himself it was time he pulled himself together again, and on a March morning he went out, returned again with two great bunches of yellow daffodils, placed one bunch on his mantelpiece between the Sheffield sticks, and the other on the table before him, and took out the half-completed manuscript of Romilly Bishop. But before beginning work he went to a small rosewood cabinet and took from a drawer his cheque-book and pass-book. He totted them up, and his monk-like face grew thoughtful. His installation had cost him more than he had intended it should, and his balance was rather less than fifty pounds, with no immediate prospect of more. Mm, I had forgotten rugs and chintz curtains, and so forth mounted up so, said Oleron, but it would have been a pity to spoil the place for the want of ten pounds or so. Well, Romilly simply must be out for the autumn, that's all, so here goes. He drew his papers towards him. But he worked badly, or rather, he did not work at all. The square outside had its own noises, frequent and new, and Oleron could only hope that he would speedily become accustomed to these. First came hawkers, with their carts and cries. At midday the children, returning from school, trooped into the square and swung on Oleron's gate, and when the children had departed again for afternoon school, an itinerant musician with a mandolin posted himself beneath Oleron's window and began to strum. This was a not unpleasant distraction, and Oleron, pushing up his window, threw the man a penny. Then he returned to his table again. But it was no good. He came to himself, at long intervals, to find that he had been looking about his room and wondering how it had been formerly furnished, whether a settee in buttercup or petunia satin had stood under the farther window, whether from the centre moulding of the light lofty ceiling had depended a glimmering crystal chandelier, or where the tambour frame or the picquet table had stood. No, it was no good. He had far better be frankly doing nothing than getting fruitlessly tired, and he decided that he would take a walk, but chancing to sit down for a moment, dozed in his chair instead. "'This won't do,' he yawned when he awoke at half-past four in the afternoon. "'I must do better than this to-morrow.' And he felt so deliciously lazy that for some minutes he even contemplated the breach of an appointment he had for the evening. The next morning he sat down to work without even permitting himself to answer one of his three letters, two of them tradesmen's accounts, the third a note from Miss Bengough, forwarded from his old address. It was a jolly day of white and blue, with a gay, noisy wind and a subtle turn in the colour of growing things, and over and over again, once or twice a minute his room became suddenly light and then subdued again, as the shining white clouds rolled north-eastwards over the square. The soft, fitful illumination was reflected in the polished surface of the table, and even in the foot-worn old floor, and the morning noises had begun again. Oleron made a pattern of dots on the paper before him, and then broke off to move the jar of daffodils exactly opposite the centre of the creamy panel. 
Then he wrote a sentence that ran continuously for a couple of lines, after which it broke on into notes and jottings. For a time he succeeded in persuading himself that in making these memoranda he was really working. Then he rose and began to pace his room. As he did so, he was struck by an idea. It was that the place might possibly be a little better for more positive colour. It was perhaps a thought too pale, mild and sweet, as a kind old face, but a little devitalized, even wan. Yes, decidedly, it would bear a robuster note, more and richer flowers, and possibly some warm and gay stuff for cushions for the window-seats. "'Of course I really can't afford it,' he muttered, as he went for a two-foot and began to measure the width of the window-recesses. In stooping to measure a recess, his attitude suddenly changed to one of interest and attention. Presently he rose again, rubbing his hands with gentle glee. "'Oh, ho, oh, ho!' he said. "'These look to me very much like window-boxes nailed up. We must look into this. Yes, those are boxes, or I'm—' "'Aha! This is an adventure!' On that wall of his sitting-room there were two windows, the third was in another corner, and beyond the open bedroom door, on the same wall, was another. The seats of all had been painted, repainted, and painted again, and Oleron's investigating finger had barely detected the old nail-heads beneath the paint. Under the ledge over which he stooped an old keyhole had also been putted up. Oleron took out his penknife. He worked carefully for five minutes, and then went into the kitchen for a hammer and chisel. Driving the chisel cautiously under the seat, he started the whole lid slightly. Again using the penknife, he cut along the hinged edge and outward along the ends, and then he fetched a wedge and a wooden mallet. "'Now for our little mystery,' he said. The sound of the mallet on the wedge seemed, in that sweet and pale apartment, somehow a little brutal, nay, even shocking. The panelling rang and rattled and vibrated to the blows like a sounding-board. The whole house seemed to echo. From the roomy cellarage to the garrets above a flock of echoes seemed to awake, and the sound got a little on Oleron's nerves. All at once he paused, fetched a duster, and muffled the mallet. When the edge was sufficiently raised, he put his fingers under it and lifted. The paint flaked and starred a little, the rusty old nails squeaked and grunted, and the lid came up, laying open the box beneath. Oleron looked into it. Save for a couple of inches of scurf and mould and old cobwebs, it was empty. "'No treasure there,' said Oleron, a little amused that he should have fancied there might have been. "'Romilly will still have to be out by the autumn. Let's have a look at the others.' He turned to the second window. The raising of the two remaining seats occupied him until well into the afternoon. That of the bedroom, like the first, was empty but from the second seat of his sitting-room he drew out something yielding and folded and furred over an inch thick with dust. He carried the object into the kitchen, and having swept it over a bucket, took a duster to it. It was some sort of large bag, of ancient, frieze-like material, and when unfolded it occupied the greater part of the small kitchen floor. In shape it was an irregular, very irregular triangle, and it had a couple of wide flaps, with the remains of straps and buckles. The patch that had been uppermost in the folding was of faded yellowish-brown, but the rest of it was shades of crimson that varied according to the exposure of the parts of it. "'Now, whatever can that have been?' Oleron mused as he stood surveying it. "'I give it up. Whatever it is, it's settled my work for to-day, I'm afraid.' He folded the object up carelessly and thrust it into a corner of the kitchen. Then, taking pans and brushes and an old knife, 
he returned to the sitting-room and began to scrape and to wash and to line with paper his newly discovered receptacles. When he had finished, he put his spare boots and books and papers into them, and he closed the lids again, amused with his little adventure, but also a little anxious for the hour to come when he should settle fairly down to his work again. It piqued Oleron a little that his friend, Miss Bengough, should dismiss with a glance the place he himself had found so singularly winning. Indeed, she scarcely lifted her eyes to it. But then she had always been more or less like that, a little indifferent to the graces of life, careless of appearances, and perhaps a shade more herself when she ate biscuits from a paper bag than when she dined with greater observance of the convenances. She was an unattached journalist of thirty-four, large, showy, fair as butter, pink as a dog-rose, reminding one of a florist's picked specimen bloom, and given to sudden and ample movements, and moist and explosive utterances. She pulled a better living out of the pool, as she expressed it, than Oleron did, and by cunningly disguised puffs of drapers and haberdashers she pulled also the greater part of her very varied wardrobe. She left small whirlwinds of air behind her when she moved, in which her veils and scarves fluttered and spun. Oleron heard the flurry of her skirts on his staircase and her single loud knock at his door when he had been a month in his new abode. Her garments brought in the outer air, and she flung a bundle of ladies' journals down on a chair. "'Don't knock off for me,' she said, across a mouthful of large-headed hatpins as she removed her hat and veil. "'I didn't know whether you were straight yet, so I've bought some sandwiches for lunch. You've got coffee, I suppose. No, don't get up. I'll find the kitchen.' "'Oh, that's all right. I'll clear these things away.' "'To tell the truth, I am rather glad to be interrupted,' said Oleron. He gathered his work together and put it away. She was already in the kitchen. He heard the running of water into the kettle. He joined her, and ten minutes later followed her back to the sitting-room with the coffee and sandwiches on a tray. They sat down with the tray on a small table between them. "'Well, what do you think of the new place?' Oleron asked as she poured out coffee. Mm, "'Anybody would think you are going to get married, Paul,' he laughed. "'Oh, no, but it's an improvement on some of them, isn't it?' "'Is it? I suppose it is. I don't know. I like the last place, in spite of the black ceiling and no water-tap. How's Romilly?' Oleron thumped his chin. Mm, "'I'm rather ashamed to tell you. The fact is, I've not got on very well with it. But it will be all right on the night, as you used to say. "'Stuck?' "'Rather stuck.' "'Got any of which you care to read to me?' Oleron had long been in the habit of reading portions of his work to Miss Bengough occasionally. Her comments were always quick and practical, sometimes directly useful, sometimes indirectly suggestive. She, in return for his confidence, always kept all mention of her own work sedulously from him. His, she said, was real work, hers merely filled space, not always even grammatically. "'I'm afraid there isn't,' Oleron replied, still meditatively dry-shaving his chin. Then he added, with a little burst of candour. The fact is, Elsie, I've not written, not actually written, very much more of it. Any more of it, in fact. But, of course, that doesn't mean I haven't progressed. I've progressed in one sense, rather alarmingly. I'm now thinking of reconstructing the whole thing. Miss Bengough gave a gasp. Reconstructing? Making Romilly herself a different type of woman. Somehow I've begun to feel that I'm not getting the most out of her. As she stands, I've certainly lost interest in her to some extent. But, Miss Bengough protested, you had her so real, so living, Paul. Oleron smiled faintly. He had been quite prepared for Miss Bengough's disapproval. He wasn't surprised that she liked Romilly, as she at present existed. She would. 
Whether she realised it or not, there was much of herself in his fictitious creation. Naturally, Romilly would seem real, living, to her. "'But are you really serious, Paul?' Miss Bengough asked presently, with a round-eyed stare. "'Quite serious.' "'You're really going to scrap those fifteen chapters?' "'I didn't exactly say that.' "'That fine, rich love scene?' "'I should only do it reluctantly, and for the sake of something I thought better.' "'And that beautiful, beautiful description of Romilly on the shore?' "'It wouldn't necessarily be wasted,' he said, a little uneasily. But Miss Bengough made a large and windy gesture, and then let him have it. "'Really, you are too trying,' she broke out. "'I do wish sometimes you'd remember you're human and live in a world. "'You know I'd be the last to wish you to lower your standards one inch, "'but it wouldn't be lowering it to bring it within human comprehension. "'Oh, you're sometimes altogether too godlike. "'Why, it would be a wicked, criminal waste of your powers to destroy those fifteen chapters. "'Look at it reasonably now. "'You've been working for nearly twenty years. "'You've now got what you've been working for almost within your grasp.' "'Your affairs are at a most critical stage. "'Oh, don't tell me. "'I know you're about at the end of your money. "'And here you are, deliberately proposing to withdraw a thing "'that will probably make your name, "'and to substitute for it something that ten to one "'nobody on earth will ever want to read, "'and small blame to them. "'Really, you try my patience.' "'Oleron had shaken his head slowly as she had talked. "'It was an old story between them. "'The noisy, able, practical journalist "'was an admirable friend, up to a certain point.' Beyond that, well, each of us knows that point beyond which we stand alone. Elsie Bengough sometimes said that, had she one-tenth part of Oleron's genius, there were few things she could not have done, thus making that genius a quantitatively divisible thing, a sort of ingredient to be added to or subtracted from in the admixture of his work, that it was a qualitative thing, essential, indivisible, informing, past her comprehension. Their spirits parted company at that point. Oleron knew it. She did not appear to know it. "'Yes, yes, yes,' he said a little wearily, by and by. "'Practically you're quite right, entirely right, and I haven't a word to say. If I could only turn Romilly over to you, you'd make an enormous success of her. But that can't be, and I, for my part, am seriously doubting whether she's worth my while. You know what that means.' "'What does it mean?' she demanded bluntly. "'Well,' he said, smiling wanly, what does it mean when you're convinced a thing isn't worth doing? You simply don't do it. Miss Bengough's eyes swept the ceiling for assistance against this impossible man. What utter rubbish! she broke out at last. Why, when I saw you last you were simply oozing, Romilly. You were turning her off at the rate of four chapters a week. If you hadn't moved, you'd have had her three parts done by now. What on earth possessed you to move right in the middle of your most important work?' Oleron tried to put her off with a recital of inconveniences, but she wouldn't have it. Perhaps in her heart she partly suspected the reason. He was simply mortally weary of the narrow circumstances of his life. He had had twenty years of it. Twenty years of garrets and roof chambers and dingy flats and shabby lodgings, and he was tired of dinginess and shabbiness. The reward was as far off as ever or, if it was not, he no longer cared as once he would have cared to put out his hand and take it. It is all very well to tell a man who is at the point of exhaustion that only another effort is required of him. If he cannot make it, he is as far off as ever. Anyway, Oleron summed up, I am happier here than I have been for a long time. That's some sort of justification. And doing no work, said Miss Bengough pointedly. 
at that a trifling petulance that had been gathering in oleron came to a head and why should i do nothing but work he demanded how much happier am i for it i don't say i don't love my work when it's done but i hate doing it sometimes it's an intolerable burden that i simply long to be rid of once in many weeks it has a moment one moment of glow and thrill for me i remember the days when it was all glow and thrill and now i'm forty-four and it's becoming drudgery nobody wants it i'm ceasing to want it myself and if any ordinary sensible man were to ask me whether i didn't think i was a fool to go on i think i should agree that i was miss bengough's comely pink face was serious but you knew all that many many years ago paul and still you chose it she said in a low voice well and how should i have known he demanded i didn't know i was told so my heart if you like told me so and i thought i knew youth always thinks it knows then one day it discovers that it is nearly fifty forty-four paul forty-four then and it finds that the glamour isn't in front but behind yes i knew and chose if that's knowing and choosing but it's a costly choice we're called on to make when we're young miss bengough's eyes were on the floor without moving them she said you're not regretting it paul am i not he took her up upon my word i've lately thought i am what do i get in return for it all you know what you get she replied he might have known from her tone what else he could have had for the holding up of a finger herself she knew but could not tell him that he could have done no better thing for himself had he any time these ten years asked her to marry him she would have replied quietly very well when he had never thought of it yours is the real work she continued quietly without you we jackals couldn't exist you and a few like you hold everything upon your shoulders for a minute there was silence then it occurred to oleron that this was common vulgar grumbling it was not his habit suddenly he rose and began to stack cups and plates on the tray sorry you catch me like this elsie he said with a little laugh no i'll take them out then we'll go for a walk if you like he carried out the tray and then began to show miss bengough round his flat she made few comments in the kitchen she asked what an old faded square of reddish frieze was that mrs barrett used as a cushion for her wooden chair that i should be glad if you could tell me what it is Elron replied as he unfolded the bag and related the story of its finding in the window seat i think i know what it is said miss bengough it's been used to wrap up a harp before putting it into its case by jove that's probably just what it was said Elron. i could make neither head nor tail of it they finished the tour of the flat and returned to the sitting-room and who lives in the rest of the house miss bengough asked i dare say a tramp sleeps in the cellar occasionally nobody else mm, well i'll tell you what i think about it if you like i should like you'll never work here oh said oleron quickly why not you'll never finish rumley here why i don't know but you won't i know it you'll have to leave before you get on with that book he mused for a moment and then said isn't that a little prejudiced elsie perfectly ridiculous as an argument it hasn't a leg to stand on but there it is she replied her mouth once more full of the large-headed hat-pins Elrond was reaching down his hat and coat he laughed i can only hope you're entirely wrong he said for i shall be in a serious mess if romilly isn't out in the autumn as oleron sat by his fire that evening pondering miss bengough's prognostication that difficulties awaited him in his work 
he came to the conclusion that it would have been far better had she kept her beliefs to herself. No man does a thing better for having his confidence dampened at the outset, and to speak of difficulties is in a sense to make them. Speech itself becomes a deterrent act, to which other discouragements accrete, until the very event of which warning is given is as likely as not to come to pass. He heartily confounded her, an influence hostile to the completion of Romilly had been born. And in some illogical, dogmatic way women seemed to have, she had attached this antagonistic influence to his new abode. Was ever anything so absurd? You'll never finish Romilly here. Why not? Was this her idea of the luxury that saps the springs of action and brings a man down to indolence and dropping out of the race? The place was well enough. It was entirely charming, for that matter. But it was not so demoralising as all that. No, Elsie had missed the mark that time. He moved his chair to look around the room that smiled, positively smiled in the firelight. He too smiled, as if pity was to be entertained for a maligned apartment. Even that slight lack of robust colour, he had remarked, was not noticeable in the soft glow. The drawn chintz curtains, they had a flowered and trellised pattern, with baskets and oaten pipes, fell in long quiet folds to the window-seats. The rows of bindings in old bookcases took the light richly. The last trace of sallowness had gone with the daylight, and, if the truth must be told, it had been Elsie herself, who had seemed a little out of the picture. That reflection struck him a little, and presently he returned to it. Yes, the room had, quite accidentally, done Miss Bengough a disservice that afternoon. It had, in some subtle but unmistakable way, placed her, marked a contrast of qualities. Assuming, for the sake of argument, the slightly ridiculous proposition that the room in which Oleron sat was characterised by a certain sparsity and lack of vigour, so much the worse for Miss Bengough. She certainly erred on the side of redundancy and general muchness. And if one must contrast abstract qualities, Oleron inclined to the austere in taste. Yes, here Oleron had made a distinct discovery. He wondered he had not made it before. He pictured Miss Bengough again, as she had appeared that afternoon, large, showy, moistly pink, with that quality of the prize bloom exuding, as it were, from her, and instantly she suffered in his thought. He even recognised now that he had noticed something odd at the time, and that unconsciously his attitude, even while she had been there, had been one of criticism. The mechanism of her was a little obvious. Her melting humidity was the result of analysable processes, and behind her there had seemed to lurk some dim shape emblematic of mortality. He had never, during the ten years of their intimacy, dreamed for a moment of asking her to marry him. Nonetheless, he now felt for the first time a thankfulness that he had not done so. Then, suddenly and swiftly, his face flamed that he should be thinking thus of his friend. What? Elsie Bengough, with whom he had spent weeks and weeks of afternoons, she, the good chum, on whose help he would have counted had all the rest of the world failed him, she, whose loyalty to him would not, he knew, swerve as long as there was breath in her, Elsie, to be even in thought dissected thus. He was an ingrate and a cad. Had she been there in that moment, he would have abased himself before her. For ten minutes and more he sat, still gazing into the fire, with that humiliating red fading slowly from his cheeks. All was still within and without, save for a tiny musical tinkling that came from his kitchen, the dripping of water from an imperfectly turned-off tap into the vessel beneath it. Mechanically he began to beat with his finger to the faintly heard falling of the drops. 
The tiny regular movement seemed to hasten that shameful withdrawal from his face. He grew cool once more, and when he resumed his meditation he was all unconscious that he took it up again at the same point. It was not only her florid superfluity of build that he had approached in the attitude of criticism. He was conscious also of the wide differences between her mind and his own. He felt no thankfulness that up to a certain point their natures had ever run companionably side by side. He was now full of questions beyond that point. Their intellects diverged, there was no denying it, and looking back he was inclined to doubt whether there had been any real coincidence. True, he had read his writings to her, and she had appeared to speak comprehendingly and to the point, but what can a man do who, having assumed that another sees as he does, is suddenly brought up sharp by something that falsifies and discredits all that has gone before? He doubted all now. It did for a moment occur to him that the man who demands of a friend more than can be given to him is in danger of losing that friend, but he put the thought aside. Again he ceased to think, and again moved his finger to the distant dripping of the tap. And now, he resumed by and by, if these things were true of Elsie Bengough, they were also true of the creation of which she was the prototype, Romilly Bishop. And since he could say of Romilly what for very shame he could not say of Elsie, he gave his thoughts rein. He did so in that smiling, fire-lighted room, to the accompaniment of the faintly heard tap. There was no longer any doubt about it. He hated the central character of his novel. Even as he had described her physically, she overpowered the senses. She was coarse-fibred, over-coloured, rank. It became true the moment he formulated his thought. Gulliver had described the Brobdignagian maids of honour thus, and mentally and spiritually she corresponded, was unsensitive, limited, common. The model, he closed his eyes for a moment, the model stuck out through fifteen vulgar and blatant chapters to such a pitch that, without seeing the reason, he had been unable to begin the sixteenth. He marvelled that it had only just dawned upon him. And this was to have been his Beatrice, his vision. As Elsie she was to have gone into the furnace of his art, and she was to have come out the woman all men desire. Her thoughts were to have been culled from his own finest, her form from his dearest dreams, and her setting wherever he could find one fit for her worth. He had brooded long before making the attempt. Then one day he had felt her stir within him, as a mother feels a quickening, and he had begun to write, and so he had added chapter to chapter, and those fifteen sodden chapters were what he had produced. Again he sat, softly moving his finger. Then he bestirred himself. She must go. All fifteen chapters of her. That was settled. For what was to take her place in his mind was a blank, but one thing at a time. A man is not excused from taking the wrong course because the right one is not immediately revealed to him. Better would come if it was to come. In the meantime, he rose, fetched the fifteen chapters, and read them over before he should drop them into the fire. But instead of putting them in the fire, he let them fall from his hand. He became conscious of the dripping of the tap again. It had a tinkling gamut of four or five notes, on which it rang irregular changes, and it was foolishly sweet and dulcimer-like. In his mind Oleron could see the gathering of each drop, its little tremble on the lip of the tap, and the tiny percussion of its fall, plink, plunk, minimised almost to inaudibility. Following the lowest note there seemed to be a brief phrase, irregularly repeated, 
and presently Oleron found himself waiting for the recurrence of this phrase. It was quite pretty. But it did not conduce to wakefulness, and Oleron dozed over his fire. When he awoke again, the fire had burned low, and the flames of the candles were licking the rims of the Sheffield sticks. Sluggishly he rose, yawned, and went his nightly round of door-locks and window fastenings, and passed into his bedroom. Soon he slept soundly. But a curious little sequel followed on the morrow. Mrs. Barrett usually tapped, not at his door, but at the wooden wall, beyond which lay Oleron's bed. And then Oleron rose, put on his dressing-gown, and admitted her. He was not conscious that, as he did so that morning, he hummed an air. But Mrs. Barrett lingered with her hand on the door-knob, and a face a little averted and smiling. "'Dear me!' her soft falsetto rose. "'But that will be a very old tune, Mr. Oleron. I will not have heard it for this forty years.' "'What tune?' Oleron asked. "'The tune, indeed, that you was humming, sir.' Oleron had his thumb in the flap of a letter. It remained there. "'I was humming. Sing it, Mrs. Barrett.' Mrs. Barrett prut-prutted. "'I have no voice for singing, Mr. Oleron. It was Anne Pugh was a singer of our family, but the tune will be very old, and it's called The Beckoning Fair One.' "'Try to sing it,' said Oleron, his thumb still in the envelope and Mrs. Barrett, with much dimpling and confusion, hummed the air. "'They do say it was sung to a harp, Mr. Oleron, and it will be very old,' she concluded. "'And I was singing that?' "'Indeed you was. I would not be likely to tell you lies.' With a uh, very well, let me have breakfast, Oleron opened his letter. But the trifling circumstance struck him as more odd than he would have admitted to himself. The phrase he had hummed, had been that which he had associated with the falling from the tap on the evening before. End of chapter 1, part 1